0: I pass you in the hallway and you ask how I'm doing. I answered, but I wasn't honest. You see, I make sure I have this smile so that you don't ask me what I'm thinking or what's going on in my life. I enter this room and I, I see the words that are in the song and I hear the words that the pastor are saying, is saying. And I just wonder about them. And I, I know that there's people that have needs around me that are dealing with stuff. But I, I have my own things I'm worried with. And so if I were to answer you honestly about how I'm doing, in one word, put, to put it all in one word, it's conflicted. I feel conflicted. And I, I'm starting to wonder if this whole church thing is for me. Don't get me wrong, there, there are things that I love about the church. Uh, being loved unconditionally, that is awesome. Being able to be forgiven for anything that I've done, great. It's amazing that God has a plan for me to bless me, that I'm going to have success and I'm going to have a hope for a future. And, and last year when my father was dealing with illness, of course I wanted God to do all things for the good of him. Those are all ideas I can get behind. But there are some things that are in the Bible and about following God that I think are a little too much. And, for instance, sexual purity. It's a little out of date, right? A little out of date. Uh, My personal life. Why does God worry about what's happening in my personal life? It's not affecting anyone else. I mean, God wants me to be happy, right? God, God loves me, right? So why does my personal life affect anything? And the offering. I know the pastor talks about generosity and how I should be sacrificial, but I don't think the guy knows how hard it is for me to make ends meet at times. I know the Bible talks about giving generously, but I think I'll just keep those resources to myself. And so there are things that I love about about the church and about about God. But there are these other things that I don't quite get get the reason behind them. And so I'm conflicted. I I believe in Jesus. I just I don't think I can do everything that he's wanting me to do.
1: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We're in the midst of a series of messages we're calling Dead Orthodoxy. And this is your first week. If you weren't here last week, I'd first of all encourage you to go to our website and click on the sermons tab and go and check out the sermon from last week that kind of introduces this series of messages. But the idea behind Dead Orthodoxy is that there are a lot of believers out there that claim they believe in Jesus. They claim that they follow Jesus, but their lifestyles don't necessarily demonstrate it. Um, We talked about last week that there are scripture passages that talk about this form of godliness, this having something that shows that we say we believe in Jesus, but that our actions, that our lives don't demonstrate it. Kind of like uh, we, we talked about The Walking Dead or zombie movies or places where people have an outer shell but no soul and that a lot of people's Christianity falls into that category that we don't quite have it where we're affecting our daily lives. We started with a couple of uh, scripture passages, and this one was one that we started with last week, where it talks about this shell that they claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Or Paul writing to another of his young pastors. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. We will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then kind of the one at the end that shows everything that's going, holding to the form of godliness but denying It's power. And so we're talking through this series of messages this week, next week we'll finish up, about some attributes that must be a part of our lives if we're going to show and demonstrate that God has changed who we are and what we're doing. Part of the problem is that we just have way too many choices in our lives. Way too many things to choose from. And not just, like, things to do, but just in life in general. When I was growing up... In Dyersburg, Tennessee, there were three choices for ice cream. At the grocery store, Turner was the local dairy. We had vanilla, chocolate, strawberry. And that was it. Now, if it was a really fancy grocery store, they might have one gallon that had all three of those inside of it. Right? And that was called Neapolitan, Right? And that was really fancy days because then everybody could get what they want. Then in Dyersburg, Baskin-Robbins came to town. We went from three choices to 31 flavors. And I got introduced to world-class chocolate and fudge ripple and peanut butter chocolate ice cream together. Now 31 flavors is, that's old school, right? Right? I now, mean, if you go to your grocery today, you don't have three choices for ice cream. This is what the ice cream section at your grocery store looks like. A myriad of choices. Choices upon choices upon choices. Now, obviously, this is in some God-forsaken location in America because I do not see any bluebell ice cream in the shelves. But you've got all kinds of brands, all kinds of flavors, all kinds of price points. you got sales on items. You've got over here the drumsticks and the novelties, because that's what they call them, the novelties. Here is just pure ice cream. The thing is, if you don't like that kind of ice cream, there's probably somewhere out there that would customize ice cream for you. Because in our society, you can customize anything you want. Customize shoes. You can get online and order some fresh new kicks, right? Look just like you want them. I saw this week online, if you're looking, maybe some of you are starting to think Christmas presents. You're looking for your spouse or significant somebody in your life. You can customize toilet paper online now. Special messages or pictures or whatever. You can get a special customized bobblehead. Where you can have it printed out, 3D printed, and then sit on your desk, a bobblehead of yourself, nodding yes at everything that's happening. Through online dating sites, people are trying to customize their boyfriend or girlfriend I'd like someone who likes to read and takes long walks on the beach is five foot ten with blonde hair weighs about one sixty five and if I could have that by Friday, it would be great. How many of you are Sonic fans? not like the Seattle supersonics like Sonic the restaurant right all right How many of you are Sonic fans did you know that you can get? Up to, there are at Sonic 3.5 million drink combinations. And I get the same thing every time. Like I didn't realize I had stopped myself. Now, what about coffee? Some of us remember when coffee you had four choices black, with sugar, with cream, or you get really crazy with cream and sugar. I heard somebody order the other day at Starbucks. This is, this is true. This is a true order I heard because I heard it and then they had to say it again and I, and I, I, I wrote it down. It was a, they ordered a grande soy half calf vanilla latte extra hot with caramel drizzle and light whip. Now I'm, I'm not a coffee, big coffee drinker and I'm not, definitely not a coffee purist. Uh, the, my form of coffee is a mocha, alright, but that does not seem to really be coffee much there, right? And we've, Live in a society that convinces us we ought to be able to customize anything we want to. Customer's always right. If you're in a restaurant and you're uncomfortable with the temperature, even though everybody else seems to be perfectly fine, you need to let the manager know this temperature does not suit you. If the temperature of the food is not quite right, you need need to to let them know. They, they They need to be aware of that because the customer is what? Always right. And some of that has trickled into our idea that we ought to be able to customize anything, including our understanding of God and our understanding of faith. And like human beings have been trying to do since the beginning, we want to recreate God in our own image. Well, you know what I really like? I really, really like that aspect of God's character. I'm not so sure about that. God, I just can't believe in a God that would. Or I could never follow a God that would do that. Or make me believe that. Or make me change that. And the problem is, when we make God in our own image, it is a mess. The truth is, in general, when we as human beings have freedom to make choices of lots of things, we make a mess of it. If you want proof of that... Just go stand at the end of a buffet line at Golden Corral or Western Sizzlin' or Rinds and look at the plates that people construct for themselves when they have that many choices. A leg of fried chicken on top of broccoli, on top of lo mein, on top of a brownie. And you get back to your table and you look at it and you're like... I have never in my life eaten this combination of food. And you eat it and you think, I am never in my life probably need to eat that combination of food again. There are a lot of people that say, man, I I wish I could walk down the buffet line of God's attributes and say, you know what? I really like the love of God, but I'm going to leave off the wrath. Man, if I could take some of that mercy without some judgment or the blessings without the whole take up your cross and follow me thing. If I could choose the Bible parts that I agree with and follow them, man, that would be awesome. I'm going to follow Jesus that way. But the Bible makes it very clear that God is not someone with whom we can change or alter to fit our mold in any way. In fact, scripture claims that understanding who God truly is and living in reverence and all of that is the start, is the beginning, is the place where we truly start to live for Him. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now most of us know that verse, we've seen that verse quoted, but I think Proverbs 14.27 is even more interesting. Because it says in Proverbs 14.27 that the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And what it means there is, it is the beginning point, it is the place that fearing the Lord is what gives us true freedom, true life, true living. At the end of Ecclesiastes, when he has looked at every possible way to fill his life, he says, when all is heard, this is my conclusion, to fear God and keep his commands. And Psalm 36 reminds us where David says that what we see in those that are wicked is that they have no dread, no fear of the Lord. And so today what I want to do is ask the question, what does fear of the Lord look like? And how do we move our lives toward that? Because without it, if we're just out there making our understanding of who God is and what he would punish and what he would say and how he's going to let us live and why he cares about that. If we just have our own ideas of it, we are missing the fountain of life and the beginning of all wisdom. So we're going to do that, but turning to Isaiah chapter six. So the most influential passages of scripture in my life. One that I have gone back to again and again that I have preached on in this church multiple occasions. But is a perfect example of what someone who is gripped by fearing the Lord truly means. I just want to tell you right from the very beginning that fearing the Lord is one of those phrases that's kind of gone out of style. People don't talk about that a whole lot because that kind of seems weird. We we, we don't want to fear the Lord. We don't want to be scared of the Lord. But the truth is, as we look at the scriptures, fear of the Lord is a natural response of a human being who comes in contact with an unbelievable, incomprehensible, completely powerful God. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says... In the year that King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah had been the king for about 53 years. It had been a great king. Um, he had been a great king for most of that, he kind of waffled towards the end, had gone off track towards the end but in the year that King Uzziah died Isaiah, his prophet, the one that was the prophet of the Lord for that area, for that time was conflicted, he's worried he's thinking, what do we do next, where do we go from here how do we keep going, how does the nation continue, he's worried about a lot of things, about how the nation is going to fare in the days ahead if it's going to succeed, if it's going to fail, if this is the end, and he is worried about that and he goes to the temple, on a day when he expects it to be a day like any other day and when he gets to the temple it is a day unlike any other day because when he gets to the temple he sees the Lord seated high on lofty throne and the the end of his robe filled the temple. So he walks in thinking it's any other Sunday, any other week, and he's gonna go and pray because he's unsure about what the next step is in his life, in the life of the nation. He's worried about what it means for his family, what it means for the people that he knows, what it means for those around him. He walks into church expecting the same kind of service, the same kind of way every day that he has seen in his entire life, and when he gets there, it is completely different. The Lord is there in a vision. He is seeing the Lord seated high on a throne with his Garment filling the temple. The seraphim, that's lots of angels, are gathered around, standing above him. They each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And these seraphim that are gathered around are singing a song together. And the next verse tells us that they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. It's a remarkable statement. We'll talk about that in a second. But the picture here is that God is in this vision filling the temple. And as He's filling the temple, He looks up and there are angels upon angels upon angels upon angels. And they are gathered around and they are singing at the top of their lungs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Isaiah Locked in and is overwhelmed by what he sees. Next verse says. The foundations of the doorway shook. At the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. And then it goes on to say. And I said. Now I cut it off there specifically. Because I want you to think about. What would you say? I mean, you've walked into a place where God Almighty is suddenly revealing a glimpse of who He is, a portion of who He is, a portion of His majesty, of His glory, and you are standing there and you realize that this is for you and that He has pulled the veil back for a moment. He has unveiled Himself for a brief moment in time for you to see, for you to understand, for you to get a glimpse. He's looking and it says, Then Isaiah said... I mean, what's appropriate at this moment? Now, some of you know what he says. Like, what's appropriate here? Man, that is so cool. Like, wow. Like, how are you doing that, God? The first thing that Isaiah realizes is he has no business being there. One of my fears for our generation is that we have tried so much to... Um, I, I invented this word, I think, in the first service. It may be a real word, but I, I don't know. But I just needed a word. We have tried so much to friendify God. To make him our friend, our buddy, our pal. That in the result of that, as we no longer stand in awe of who he is. And yes, there are scriptures throughout the Bible about the fact that he loves us. That he's closer to us than a brother. That he wants us to be his son and daughter. That we are co-heirs with Christ. That he sees us as a part of his family. But there are equally and more scriptures that remind us that this is not some little better than us human being walking around. This is God Almighty, King of the universe. And in our attempt to make him cute and cuddly, we have forgotten that he is awesome and powerful. Then I said, woe is me. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Armies. Woe is me. His first thought is, I don't deserve to be here. I can't stay here. It is too much for me to handle. It is too big for me to be able to do anything with. Like, I can't handle this. I can't stand it. And sometimes we read scripture. We don't read it with the emotion that was there. We don't read it with the understanding that was there. And sometimes we'll read that and we're just reading this like anything else. And we read it and we're like, and then I said, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But what you are hearing here, what you are seeing here is not just a normal expression in a monotone voice. This is the guttural cry of a man who has come in contact with God Almighty and he realizes in the depths of his soul that everything about him is not worthy of that moment and he cries out from the very bottom part of who he is. Woe is me. I'm dirty and everybody I live with is dirty. How in the world am I able to stand this? He's probably thinking for a moment about what happened in um, Exodus when Moses says to God, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to experience your glory. And God says, I will allow my goodness to pass in front of you, but I will not allow you to see my face. Because if you see me face to face, you will die. And Isaiah's is like, like, how in the world am I going to live? Because of who I am and who I've just seen. Then one of the angels flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now it has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Now all of us love that part about sin being atoned for. We love the fact that the iniquity has been removed. But you didn't catch what had to happen for his iniquity to be removed, right? He had to be touched with what? A glowing coal. Now, let me just ask you a quick question, okay? This is basic kind of science. What is required for coal to glow? What does that mean? It's on fire, right? It's hot. Like... I like I like grilling and I, I like, we have a little fire pit in our backyard and, and sometimes in the fire pit and in the grill um, is what I like to use is, is charcoal. And so I, I get this picture of charcoal. I don't know if that's a good um reference to that time but the idea is that there's something there that's burning and you know if you get a good fire going in the fireplace or you get a good fire going in like a fire pit or in a grill that there's this one area now now for instance the grill that we use here at the church to cook for events it's a it's a, a grill that's been around for a long time and if you put charcoal in there much at all it gets blazing hot I mean, I'm talking about, like, I don't know how often just in the natural uh, cycle of life you're supposed to lose the, the hair on your arms, you know. But, like, mine is about three times a year whenever I cook over that grill, all right. Like, it's just gone. And, like, you have to stand back. Um, like the, we don't use a spatula to turn the hamburgers on that thing We we have this, we call it, it looks like a boat oar that we have. That's a tilt skillet, uh, stir. And I stand back and flip them that way because it's just hot. And sometimes it'll get so hot. We're like, we can't even like you put the burger on. You're like, whoop burger on, flip it, burger on 10 seconds. It's done. Right. And so we want to spread the coals out. And when you spread the coals out underneath that top layer, that's hot is right underneath there is this. Red hot coal. Before it's turned to ash, you can, it almost looks alive in there. And I imagine when I read that this week again, someone picking up one of those coals and touching it to my lips. You think that would be a pleasant experience? Or do you think that would hurt? Like, that would hurt, right? I made the mistake one time of reaching into our oven and grabbing a cast iron skillet that had been in a 500 degree oven for about five minutes with a bare hand. It did not feel good. And no, I have not done it since. All right. Like you learn your lesson. Now we'll talk in a moment about our iniquity being removed, because the truth is there is pain involved in forgiveness. Always. We are just fortunate to live in a time when Jesus has already paid the price of that. Through his death on the cross and the pain that came there. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send and who will go for us? Now, here's the thing about that question. God knew who he was asking that question to, right? This is not God deliberating in heaven. Who in the world am I going to get to do something for me? What where am I going to send? What, what are we going to do? This is not worried about the future of the world that Uzziah has died. Like, what are we going to do now? He is asking that question specifically to whom? Isaiah. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Isaiah speaks twice in his encounter with God and he gets it right both times. And that's a good thing because in the presence of God Almighty like he was, to get it wrong is a fatal mistake. He gets it right both times. And so here's what I want to do, is I want to ask a couple of questions as we kind of bring this all together and ask. What does it look like to fear the Lord and how do we get there? And Isaiah 6, gives us that road map. It's why I love this passage so much. And here's the reality. What it tells us in Isaiah 6 is that the first step to fearing God is to understand who he truly is. We have to understand who God is. We see it in this passage. They're there and the angels are covering themselves and they're yelling, Holy, holy, holy. The word holy there means set apart. In Scripture, whenever it is used three times in a row like that, it means the perfection of being set apart. And so what it's saying is that God is not like us just better. He is not the perfect example of a human being. He is not us at a higher level. God is completely different than us. He is completely separate from us. He is not like us. We may be like Him in some ways, but He is not like us. That he is set apart in his awesomeness. His otherness. In fact, theologians have had a hard time coming up with a good word to describe exactly what they mean. By the awesomeness, by the otherness of God. By this powerful presence of God. But he is not like us. In fact, there is none that are like him. Over the last few weeks as a staff, we've been reading a book. By Jen Wilkin called None Like You. None Like Him. And the idea behind the book is there are several ways that we can never, will never, could never be like God. Because there are certain ways that God is completely separated from us. Now, we we were given a hard time. I, we, I brought the book to the staff. We read it. Jeff and Alan and I were given a hard time because the introductory chapter is called How to Be a God-Fearing Woman. Which is not really our goal. Alright? But... The rest of the book gives a great example, each chapter, of a way that God is completely different than us. Now, in one of the chapters, one of the first ones, it does this really cool thing. It shows the ways that we can be like God and that we must try to be like God in his characteristics. Like He, God is love. God is mercy. God shows compassion. And that we must be people that are trying to do that. We must be people trying to be that. In fact, holy. Be holy as God is holy. But there are ten things that she lists that scripture describes of God that we can never be. And we must understand that this is the God we are talking about. So I brought that list. I want to show you this list. These are the ten ways. And they may be more. In fact, one of the things that I am certain of is that there are attributes and abilities of God that we have no knowledge of whatsoever. Because he has chosen not to reveal those to us. And we could not understand them if, we, if he did. And that when we get to heaven, we will not know those anyways. Because to completely understand and know God would mean that we were higher than God. And we're not going to be there. And so it talks about the fact that he is infinite, incomprehensible, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign. And I will tell you this, each week as we have gathered around as a staff, and as we have talked about a particular chapter and a particular one of these ten, we cover sovereign tomorrow and we finish the book. When we've talked about one of these attributes, there has been something in the chapter that every one of us has looked at and thought. Sometimes it's different, sometimes it's the same, we're like, that blew my mind to think of God in that way that he is infinite he has no limits whatsoever none. none our greatest have limits our best have limits the best examples of humanity of all time had limits God has none he is incomprehensible You cannot understand him. There are depths of the reality of who God is that we will never know. Ever. He is self-existent. He just has always been. He is self-sufficient. He never needs anything. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need anything. He is completely self-sufficient. He is eternal. And by that I mean he has no beginning. He has no end. He always has been. And think about this. He created time and so he is outside of time. And so one of the things we read that really kind of took us back for a minute is. Because God is eternal and outside of time and created time. That God not only is outside of time. He is in time in every moment that time has ever existed. And so he is at all places along the timeline at the same time at once. So he's here now but he's also 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he's 30 years from now, Lord Terry, that long from where we're going to be right now. Because he is outside of it. He is in all places at all times. Have a good discussion about that over lunch, all right? He's immutable. That doesn't mean you can't turn the sound off, all right? What that means is that he is unchanging, Sometimes somebody will say the only given in life is that change is inevitable. Or the only constant in life is change. But here's the truth about God. God never changes, never has, never will. He is always God. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. So He is in every spot of the universe that He created at all times. He is omniscient. He knows everything about you, past, present, and future. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows the mistakes you're going to make before you make them. He knows that you're going to think about, after me saying that, that he knew about you thinking about what he's going you're going to do. He's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants. And it doesn't tax him at all. It doesn't strain him in the least. He created the world, spoke, and light came into existence. And then he is sovereign. He is in complete control. I heard uh, some uh, guy was talking about that he was, wherever he was working out, they had a new machine that showed you how much energy you were producing while you were working out. And he said he was on a rowing machine, which is one of the highest producing things of energy you can produce while you're new. And so it's like you're producing energy as you work. And it showed him that in his hour-long rowing, he produced 320 watts. Enough power to power four light bulbs at 80 watts. He said, when you consider the fact that the sun that God created in one second, exhibits enough energy to supply earth for 13 billion years. And it is one of billions of stars of which God has created. You begin to get a small glimmer of what it would be like to understand the power of God. Even the book of Job, when Job comes to God and questions him, To the point that God finally says stop Job. He looks at Job and he says where were you when? I created the sun and the moon. Where were you when I told the oceans where to stop? Where were you when I created the land? Where were you Job? And the whole point of that to Job is quit asking questions. You are not in my league. And here's the crazy thing. In Job 26. Job says to one of his friends about God. These what we have seen. What we have seen God do. These are but the outer fringes of his works. A faint whisper of him who can understand the thunder of his power. Everything we have ever seen, including the suns and the moon and the universe, are but the outer fringes of his work. A faint whisper of him. He is perfect. In every way. He is infinite and incomprehensible and self-existent and self-sufficient and eternal. And immutable and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign. And somehow we think we can know better or stand in defiance of him. Not only do we have to understand who he is. That's the first step. The second step is exactly what Isaiah saw. We have to understand who we are. Isaiah said it, while woe is me. And the truth is, when we come in contact with the holiness of God, it is terrifying news for us. First of all, just to be in the presence of greatness is terrifying. But there are two things in particular that it reveals about us that make us tremble. And that is, first of all, our goodness is not good. Isaiah was the best they had to offer in Israel. He was the prophet of God who spoke for him. This is not some guy that has walked away from the Lord. This is a guy that in a moment of crisis comes to the very God he has served his entire life. And God says, shows who he is and Isaiah says, woe is me. Our goodness is not good. You see, we like to compare ourselves with each other. We like to say, well, at least I'm not, or I'm better than, or I'm not. I haven't given into that, or I haven't done that. At least I'm not. But when we come in contact with God, we have no standing whatsoever. We know that later Isaiah will say that our good works are like filthy rags before God. Not only does it reveal that our goodness is not good, it reveals that our strengths are really weaknesses compared to the Lord. And Isaiah looks and says, listen, the things that even I thought we were good at, we are Terrible. Our, our lips are, are, are dirtied. I live among a people of lips that are dirty. Even as I proclaimed God over and over and over out of these lips. Proclaimed your message. I realize they are unworthy of the message to which you have given me. Because I have seen the king. Can I just tell you something? That if you truly come in contact with the God of the universe... If you truly come in contact with the God that loves you and cares for you but is king of the universe, you realize real quickly that most of us think very highly of ourselves when we have no standing to do so. So what do you do in the midst of that? Well, it gives us the answer right here. You confess to the Lord that that's who you are and you allow him to heal you, to forgive you. Yes, there may be some pain. We are blessed that because of what Jesus has done, we can be assured of salvation and we don't have to pay for it for ourselves. There may still be consequences to our sin. There may be realities that we have to face because of our sin. There may be forgiveness that we have to seek from others because of our sin. And that may be a painful experience, but forgiveness is available. Love is available. Truth is available through Christ to redeem you and to save you. And the best part of this news is it doesn't matter how bad you've been or how good you've been. In the presence of God, we're all the same. And so if you are someone that thinks God could never love me, the truth of this scripture is he absolutely does. And he desires a relationship with him. And when you come to a place and you understand who he is and you admit your own failings, then God will bring forgiveness and love and healing to your life. And the way that we show, or the way that we prove, or the way that we uh, live our lives shows whether or not we trust and believe in the goodness and the power and the fear of the Lord. Because Isaiah not only admits his own shortcomings, then when God says, I need somebody to go, I need somebody to tell, he says. Now, you have to understand, Isaiah walked in probably thinking, what's going to happen? Who's next? What's going on next? And God says, I need somebody. And the idea is, Isaiah, I need you. Are you going to obey? Are you going to do? Are you going to fulfill what I ask? He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, me. Send me. Because the truth is, when we come into an understanding of the majesty of God, who is man that you would think of us, that he has saved us, that he has rescued us, then the next step we have to say is, God, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I live for you? And this is where sometimes in our culture it begins to break down. I think of a man like Abraham in the Old Testament who believed God. It tells us in the New Testament, it's credited to him righteousness. Abraham, God says, go. He didn't ask questions. He didn't go through debates. He didn't say, God, I'll go if, or can I leave this in my life, or can I still have this? He just goes. Now, we know Abraham wasn't a perfect man, and he made mistakes. But in Scripture, we see that faith and trust and fearing the Lord is shown in the way that you obey. Jesus said that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Those that hear these words and put them into practice are like the guy that built his house on the rock. Those that hear them and do not put them into practice, do not obey, do not surrender, are like those that built their life on the sand. Jesus says that they'll know you're my disciples by the way that you love. He tells us that if you love me, obey my commandments. And still there are Christians that say, well I believe in God and I want to serve him, but... I'm going to hold on to this resentment I've got for my parents or for a friend. I mean, I, I believe in God, but but I'm just going to hold on to this this whole uh, um, this gossip thing. I mean, I'm, it's not gossip. I'm just I'm just letting people know some things. But I'm just going to keep talking in that way. Or, you know what? I, I believe God, but 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 my my boyfriend and I are sexually active, and I just don't think God would want me to give that up. I mean, because it makes me happy. I believe God. I just can't tith. I can't give him the money back. can't allow him to have that part of my life. And anything you put after the word but, when you say, I believe God, but, anything you put after that is a condition which isn't honoring to a God that should be feared. So the question is today, what are you going to do about that? Is there an area of your life that you look back now and you see, or you see now, or you are experiencing at this moment, Maybe it's a relationship that you are active in that is really bringing you down. Maybe it's something that you're doing in the midst of a a marriage relationship that's causing problems with your spouse or causing problems with the Lord. Maybe it's a refusal to give over the money aspect of your life to God, to trust Him in the midst of that. Maybe it's not forgiving people in your life and worrying about how you're going to get back at them. Maybe it's an addiction to something that you're watching online. Maybe it's an addiction to a substance. What is it that you're saying? I believe you, God, but I don't fear you in this area. Because here's the truth. When you willingly say to God, I know that's what you say. But I'm just going to choose to do other. You're not playing around with a boss that could get your job gone. You're playing around with the God of the universe. Let's pray together.